This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Pete Payne, pastor at Grace Church. We want to answer this question on on the final day of this series. Now what? What do I do? Having been declared righteous, having had this this placard put over me, not guilty, guilt-free, I can lay my head on the pillow at night knowing that before God, whose opinion is the only one that matters, before God I can lay my head on the pillow at night as a believer and say, I'm not guilty, completely, perfectly righteous because he says so. Now what? What do I do? Well, I want to read just a brief passage from last week's message. Rob came to this in in Romans 5. He said, therefore, in verse 1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And that really is the question of the day. We're standing in grace. We have access. We've been declared righteous, grace passed. We're standing in grace. What do we do with that? How do we respond? Here might be some questions we would ask. What am I supposed to do with the righteousness that has been imputed or counted to me through the blood of Jesus and through faith in him? What do all the benefits that have been lavished on me? Peace with God, adoption, declared perfectly righteous. I'm a joint heir with Jesus. What do I do with that? What am I supposed to do now? Since I'm guilt-free, justified, at peace with God, reconciled, adopted, all because of the free gift that he has given me through the gospel, how then shall I live? What am I supposed to do with this? What does it mean to live guilt-free? Well, here's one answer to the question. Simeon was the son of a shepherd. He was born at Sis, now the Turkish town of Kozan in the Adana province. Sis was in the Roman province of Cilicia. After the Western Roman Empire fell in 395, it remained part of the Eastern Roman Empire, and Christianity grew quickly there. According to the bishop of Cyrus, Simeon developed a zeal for Christianity at the age of 13 following a reading of the Beatitudes. Interesting comment. He developed a zeal for Christianity. He subjected himself to ever-increasing bodily austerities from an early age, especially fasting, and he entered a monastery before the age of 16. We're going to be requiring all of our G2 youth between their junior and senior year. We'll be going to a monastery and we'll let them out when they're ready. On one occasion, moving nearby, he commenced a severe regimen of fasting for Lent, was visited by the head of the monastery who left him some water and loaves. A number of days later, Simeon was discovered unconscious with the water and loaves untouched. When he was brought back to the monastery, it was discovered that he had bound his waist with a girdle made of palm fronds so tightly that days of soaking were required to remove the fibers from the wound that had been formed. At this, Simeon was requested to leave the monastery. They didn't say why. He then shut himself up for one and a half years in a hut where he passed the whole of Lent without eating or drinking. When he emerged from the hut, his achievement was hailed as a miracle. He later took to standing continually upright so long as his limbs would sustain him. After a year and a half in a hut, Simeon sought a rocky eminence on the slopes in the mountains and compelled himself to remain a prisoner within a narrow space less than 20 meters in diameter. But crowds of pilgrims invaded the area to seek him out, asking his counsel or his prayers and leaving him insufficient time for his own devotions. This, at last, led him to adopt a new way of life. 
In order to get away from the ever-increasing number of people who frequently came to him for prayers and advice, leaving him little, if any, time for his private austerities, Simeon discovered a pillar which had survived among the ruins, formed a small platform one meter square, and upon this determined to live out his life. It's been stated that, as he seemed to be unable to avoid escaping the world horizontally, he may have brought that this, this was an attempt to try to escape it vertically. For sustenance, small boys from the village would climb up the pillar and pass him small parcels of flat bread and goat's milk. So that's one answer to the question. He lived and they kept making his pillar higher and higher. He ended up 40 feet off the ground and that's where they found him dead one day. So in answer to the question, what do we do with this amazing grace, this pronouncement, not guilty? How do we live? How then shall we live? There's one man's answer. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to escape the corruption that's in the world, and I'm going to live a holy life. And I need to, people to get away from me so that I can spend my time doing this. I don't think that is how the writers of the New Testament would respond to that. I don't think that's a correct response to the question that we've asked this morning, I think the scripture would, would point us in other directions. If we continue to read through Romans, we would have Paul telling us things like, now that you're set free, now that you've been declared righteous, shall you go on sinning? And he would answer the question with an emphatic no. Consistently, the New Testament writers will teach us what Jesus has done. They will t- point to a, his, the, what's called the indicatives of Scripture, what he has done for us that we could not do for ourselves, what God has done for us through the gospel while we were dead. We were rescued. We were set free. We were declared righteous. We had been brought from death to life. We did nothing to, to bring that about. And then they will turn in their writings from those indicatives, what God has done, to what we should do. And that's what we're doing. And it's about in the same balance. If you look at the New Testament, about two-thirds is indicative. What Jesus has done, what God has done, declaring the praises of God. And then about a third of the New Testament is about how we respond to this. What do we do as we find out that this is true, that God has really brought us from death to life. So we're going to turn to another writer from Paul to Peter. Consistently, all of the writers will have the same, the, the same word to us. They'll have the same answer. And it's not the answer of find yourself a platform 40 feet off the ground and live there hoping to escape. That is not the, the answer that the biblical writers bring us. So let's pray. And we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 will be our text for this morning. That's starting at the, the beginning of that. But let's pray first and ask the Lord to help us. Father, you are, you are so gracious as we hear this morning from your word that not only have you saved us, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, not only have you rescued us from death and paid the penalty and you've come to establish us as your children, you've called us joint heirs with Jesus, you've prepared this incredible future for us with you in glory forever. No one can stand against us. No one can bring an accusation against us because of what you've done. So Lord, we just cry out for a deep understanding of how in the world to respond to what you've done. Show us, Lord, from your word. Help us to be grounded in your word. We ask you to fill us with your spirit and enable us to hear you through your word. Change us for the glory of you. For the glory of your son, to the praise of your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. First Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Let's read together. 
since therefore, now the since refers back to all the indicatives. Peter started in chapter one by saying, praise be to God. He has given us new birth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ into an inheritance that can never perish. So he's already talked about the indicative. We're getting to his therefore in this end section of the book. Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh since he did arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think Peter would answer our question in this way as we look at this passage, as you look at the entirety of the New Testament record, the unfinished gospel. Peter's saying to us this morning, I believe, the unfinished gospel calls us and empowers us to live for God's glory in the time that's remaining, the short time that's remaining. The unfinished gospel calls us and empowers us to live for God's glory in the time that's remaining. So a couple thoughts before we get into some specifics uh, in the text and walk through a couple of, of practical applications in answer to the question of how should we live in response and because of, in light of, empowered by the truth that God has set us free and declared us guilt-free. The first thing I want you to see is that Peter points us back to the example of Jesus and then he points us forward to the end. He basically brackets the gospel for us. So he points us back to the example of Jesus right in verse 1 where he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. That's shorthand for the gospel, for all that's happened beforehand. God has done this. Jesus has suffered in the flesh. Remember that. Since he's done this, now I've got some instruction for you. So don't forget that the gospel calls you to follow Jesus' example. This is not a call to self-justification. How many of you remember from last week's Rob's message where he talked, he gave us the illustration of one of his kids who had a Spider-Man costume and they, as the kids grew, they got new Spider-Man costumes, but one of his boys loved to go back to the old, raggedy, filthy, dirty, old, too small Spider-Man costume from years gone by and put it on. Okay, it's a very funny illustration when you're three years old. Not so funny when you're a believer, because what that represents is putting on that old thing. 
putting on that old life and acting in a way that just doesn't work with who you are now. Another story for this morning, Prince and the Pauper. How many of you know the story of the Prince and the Pauper? Okay. How many of you have written a paper on the Prince and the Pauper at some point in an English class? A couple of you. All right. Here's the story of the Prince and the Pauper. There were two boys. They looked exactly alike. They might have been twins, but they were not. They grew up in different families, different sides of the tracks. One grew up in the palace. He was the prince. The other one grew up in poverty. He was a pauper. They met one day. They realized that they looked like each other. And so they decided, the prince decided to switch places with the pauper. Put on the pauper's clothes and the pauper would put on the prince's clothes. The, The pauper would act like the prince and stay in the palace and try to maintain that ruse as long as he could. And the prince, who was looking for adventure, wanted to go out and act like the pauper. End of the story. They're found out. Uh, The prince is restored to his rightful place. The pauper gets a pretty good deal because he doesn't have to go back and he he becomes friends with the prince and all that. So he's he's in a better place than he was. Good story, not the Bible. Because what happens in the Bible is we we stay princes. You know, we're no longer paupers. He found us. We weren't only paupers. We were dead. We were completely unable to raise ourselves out of poverty. There was no American dream for this guy, for any of us. We were dead in our transgressions and sin. God saved us and he declared us righteous and he adopted us and he made us his children. He called us joint heirs. We are royalty. We stay royalty. We are royalty. So going back and putting on the old Spider-Man costume, or going back and putting on the pauper's clothing is now an affront. It's a, it's a lie. It's not who we are. We've been bought. And so when we're asking the question, what do I do with this glorious freedom that's been purchased for me? One of the answers is don't do this. Don't go back and live as if you're still a pauper. Don't go back and try to put on these filthy rags when there's royal robes that you are meant to wear that you have the right purchased by another to wear, that you have the privilege of putting on and wearing every day. Notice that Peter's not calling us here to this self-justification. He's not saying, follow Christ's example, and that's how you're to act. He's saying, first, Jesus died for you. Until that occurs, following his example is just moralism. It's just seeing if I can work my own salvation out by sitting on top of a platform or doing something like that to earn the right to be God's child. So he doesn't first call us to be an imitator of Jesus, to follow his example. He first declares us to be the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. But once he does that, that's what we come, we come to the answer to this question today. Once he declares us that, once he makes us right, he does call us to look to Jesus' example. And that's exactly what Peter's saying. Don't justify yourself. You already are justified. Don't put those rags back on. Don't live the way the world does in all these, these abuses, the things that, that pastime was sufficient for all of that. Throw the thing away. It's no longer funny that you put on that Spider-Man suit anymore. It's not right that you would dress yourself as a pauper. You're a prince. You need to act and and walk like a prince. Not to earn anything, but just because I've made you this. I've declared you to be this. The lives of believers are to look very different than the lives of unbelievers. There should be a noticeable difference. Not to earn anything, but just because of who we are. We're called to be different. 
Paul would say, put off the old. Be made new. Put on the new. It's that same analogy, but that's exactly what Peter is talking about. And Peter comforts us as we lose all the things that belong to the world, all the things that look like fun in the world. We lose all of those for the sake of Jesus. He comforts us by saying, a judgment's coming. Don't respond to those anymore because there's a, those are going to be judged. And I, I felt, I told the first service this morning, I felt as I was preparing this week, just a word for the kids in this church, or maybe some of you are not so much kids anymore, that you've grown up in the church. And so as Peter's talking about you spent enough time in the past doing all these things that the, that the world does, and you really haven't done that, you've still been a sinner, you've still needed a savior. That doesn't make you different. But you've grown up in a more protected environment. You've had the word of God from an early age. The Lord would still say, don't waste your time with that which is going to be judged. Don't be tempted to go live in the world as people who are in the world. Don't be tempted as a prince to put on pauper's clothing. Take advantage of the fact that from an early age, you've been given by God this great opportunity to do more. To make the most of more opportunities because you've, you've known these things from an earlier time, just like Timothy did. So take advantage of that. The second thing Peter reminds us of, and this is what I said at the beginning, the gospel's not yet finished. In verse 7, he says this, pay attention, the end is near. So Jesus has suffered, and because of that, don't do these things. Instead, follow his example, and I want to remind you in verse 7, the end is near. He's not talking about the end that Jesus made on the cross, where Jesus said it is finished. When he said on the cross it is finished, he meant the payment for our sin is completed. God will never hold our sins against us as believers anymore. Jesus took took it all, took the wrath of God, took the punishment that we deserve, and in exchange gave us his righteousness. It is finished. That is done. That transaction is finished. But the gospel is not over, because the gospel is this story of Jesus who before time began, the scripture tells us, was chosen to be the Lamb of God. Before anything was created, he was chosen. And then at the right time, he was born of the Virgin Mary. And then he lived a perfect life, perfectly keeping every bit of God's commandment, something that no one else ever had done or ever could do. So as we read the Beatitudes and we read the Sermon on the Mount the way that this guy did, and we read, you've heard that the Pharisees do this, It's going to have to be better than that. The purpose of those words is to teach us you can't do it. You need a savior. You don't need to put yourself on a platform and try harder and harder and harder to to remove yourself from the world. You need a savior. So the savior came. He lived a perfect life. His perfect life is now counted to our account. He died a death as the sacrifice, as the atonement, as the propitiation, the one who turned away and absorbed the wrath of God from us and took it all upon himself. And then he was put in the ground. He was buried. And then three days later, he was resurrected from the dead and he was raised, as we heard on Easter, for our justification. Then he appeared to many witnesses, to as many as 500 at a time who saw him, who, and many of whom gave their lives believing he, he was here, he was back. Okay, that's the truth of what we believe about the resurrection. And then what happened? He ascended. They watched him go up into the sky and an angel told, to, told them, this Jesus is going to come back the same way. Then Jesus from heaven, seated at the Father's right hand, poured out the Holy Spirit. And that's where we are today. This grace in which we now stand. But there's more. He's coming back. That's the end of the gospel. 
So the gospel, that's why I say it's the unfinished gospel that empowers us and instructs us and enables us and points us to how we're supposed to live as we stand in this grace now, waiting for then. The end is near. Peter wants us to continually remind ourselves. He wants this banner over everything we do. The end is near. Do you want to do this? Remember, the end is near. Jesus may come back. This, the, the master's going to come back. You as a faithful steward, as a, as a son of God, as a daughter of God, want to be found doing what pleases him. The end is near. Don't do that old stuff. You've got an opportunity to do this. Don't act like a vagabond. Don't act like a servant. You're a prince. You have this glorious opportunity through the power of the Spirit, through the gospel, to make the most of opportunities to glorify God. That's who you are. That's what you've been declared to be. And that's, in fact, what we are becoming by the grace of God during this time between Jesus going up and Jesus coming back. That's where we live today. So given that, he's told us what not to do. He then drills down on four broad things that we are to do. So his answer to our question, which is going to be very similar with little nuances, but exactly the same way that Paul would answer, the same way that John would answer, the same way that James would answer, the same way that the entire New Testament would answer this question. What are we supposed to do now that we have this incredible, glorious freedom? We will never suffer death. What are we supposed to do while we're waiting? There have been people throughout history that have been hearing prophecies that, okay, Jesus is coming back in this year. This has been going on since the beginning of the church, 300, 400, 500. There have always been these movements. Jesus is going to come back, sell everything you have, go sit on a mountain closest to heaven so he'll see you when you come back. This has happened. That is not what we're talking about. Don't go sit on a pillar. Peter has some better, better spirit-inspired, spirit-breathed, God-breathed instruction for us as to what we're supposed to do now, what we get to do now, not what we have to do. In a manner, it's what we have to do because we're nobility, because we are the princes and princesses of God, the sons and daughters of God. We have an obligation, but it's an obligation born of this privilege that we have. We get to do this stuff. So number one, in verse seven, be clear-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. So what he's saying here is think right and be ready to obey so that you can pray right. That's what those Greek phrases mean. Literally, it's be sober-minded and sober for the sake of your prayers. And as you study that passage, what, it mean, what, what, Paul, or what Peter is saying here is, look, as you begin your adventure living in the now, living in the, the grace in which you now stand, the first thing I want you to do is be of sound mind. What does he mean by that? Think about the things I've been telling you. Jesus has come and suffered the gospel. Jesus is coming back. Everything that you think, everything that you do should be fit into that box. There's nothing outside that box that has any significance or any importance at all. Think about these things. Be sober-minded. To think otherwise is mental illness. To think this way, be clear-minded. Think what's true. Think about the fact that Jesus has come. What, does that hap- what has happened to you? You are a child of God. Think about that. What is going to happen? He's coming back for you. Therefore, follow his example. Okay, so think clearly. Think 
soberly. Preach the gospel to yourself in every situation that you find yourself, in every temptation that you find yourself. Be like the Son of God. It is written. It is written. I live in this box between His coming and His coming back. And everything that I do, I want to point people to Him. I want to point myself to Him. I want to point my spouse to Him. I want to point my children to Him. I want to point my unbelieving neighbor to Him. Because it's all, as we hear at the end of this, to the praise of His glory. He's the one that deserves all of that. But I'm going to be this prince. I'm going to be this princess because He's made me to be that. For the sake of your prayers. We have the privilege as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who have been brought from death to life, to pray like Jesus does. We don't have to just throw prayers up and hope that they, that they stick somehow. We don't have to just say, Lord, uh, let me just make this up. I, I, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. Instead, we can pray like Jesus did in the garden, this picture of the way that princes pray. Here's how princes pray. Lord, I really don't want... Father, I don't want to go through this. I don't want to go through the agony. I don't want to go through the separation from you, but not my will, but your will be done. He's, he's tuned in. He's sober-minded. He's thinking about the will of God. He's thinking about the perfect will of God for him and for all of, all of his prosperity, which is us. That's what he's thinking. He's thinking in a sober way. The early believers in the book of Acts, when threatened, what did they pray? Lord, consider their threats and give us more boldness. Those prayers will always be answered because they're according to the will of God. So we pray with sober-mindedness, knowing that we live between His coming and His coming back. The end is near. Pray like the end is near. Pray like the end is near. That's what He's calling us to. Guilt-free people get to pray. And get to pray right. And get to have their prayers answered. Because they're not praying with rags on. They're praying with royal robes on, understanding what... God is doing, at least in some measure. He's come, he's suffered, he's calling me to suffer the loss of all of that. He may call me to suffer many things in this world, and that's okay because he's coming back and his reward will be with him. And I'm not going to be judged the way that the world is going to be judged. Help me to pray this way, Lord. Give me prayers that are according to your will. Give me prayers to pray like the Son of God. Give me prayers to pray like those early disciples who were so filled with your Spirit. Pray, pray. Think right. Be ready to obey. Be ready, be eager. As you're praying, Lord, whatever you show me, I'm going to do. I'm leaning forward. Show me what to do. That's what he's talking about in verse 7. Second thing, in verse 8, he says this. Now that you're ready, now that you're praying right, now that you're ready, you've got, you're in the starting blocks, you're ready to race. Here's the first thing I want you to do. Love one another. Above all, love one another deeply, earnestly. This is why I believe that St. Simeon had it wrong. I don't think he read this. I, don't think he, I think he understood the, the, the Christian life to be lived separate from people, that people were a hindrance, that the church was a hindrance to him being in tune with God. And the opposite is true. The very first thing Peter says is, as you're ready, as you're praying, as you're praying like Jesus does, go serve people. Go love people. Love them earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Now he's not saying here, you're going to get to do what Jesus did. You're going to get to atone for and absorb the wrath of God for other people's sins. We can't do that. That was a once and only, only the Son of God got to do that. But we get to be an imitation of it in this way. As people come to us, 
and they need unconditional love, regardless of what that looks like. Whether we, in the flesh, like them or not, don't like them, whatever it may be, if it's our friends, our neighbors, our enemies, the boss who's treating you badly, whatever it is, I get to love like Jesus loves. That's his commandment. That's exactly what Peter's talking about here. Love as Jesus loved. Love covers a multitude of sins. Again, he's not talking about atonement. He's talking about covering, protecting, not, not making known people's sins. Proverbs says it this way in 10, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. It doesn't keep a record of wrong, we've read. It's patient. It thinks the best. It doesn't judge harshly. It's always interested in the redemption of people so that the gospel will shine more clearly in their lives. It treats others as more important than itself. It's willing to overlook offenses that the old man would have demanded retribution for. I had an experience a while ago where I had an opportunity to meet with two very close friends and one of the friends had offended the other one, had really sinned, sinned against the other one. And it was, it was a serious sin. And this guy, in the flesh, had every right to be angry and, and say, boy, you, you, you need to pay me back. I mean, it was a serious sin that had been committed. And what happened right before my eyes was like the gospel was on display. I, in, in 30 years, I don't think I, of ministry, I don't think I've seen any more clear display of the gospel as, as this person who had been sinned against grievously went first to his own heart and said, what have I done to make it difficult for you to, to love me, to not sin against me? And, and it, I, I forgive you. As the Lord has forgiven me, I forgive you. Just powerful moment, but that's, that's what he means here. Love covers a multitude of sins. We don't have to put our beggar suit back on and say, you owe me. We get to put on our royal robes and say, you know what? He's coming back. It is my absolute joy, privilege, honor to do what my father did for me, to forgive you as he forgave me. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for confessing your sin to me. You didn't have to do that, but I'm going to pronounce now over you. God says, if, you're, if you confess your sins, he, not I, is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And we have the opportunity as the children of God, clothed in his righteousness, com- com- called joint heirs with Jesus. We have authority because of the word to say, God forgives you, and I gladly forgive you. Powerful. Don't miss the opportunity because what do we do when that happens? The gospel's on display and the world looks and says, you're out of your mind. They mock us. They say, you've got to get revenge. You've got to get retribution. And you say, banner over my life, God's coming back. Jesus is coming back. The end of all things is near. How would I withhold forgiveness when the one who I owe everything to has graciously forgiven me. So let's love like that. Remember and, and emphasize as you meet in your, in your small groups, as you meet in your family, as husbands and wives are meeting together, as parents and children are meeting together, guilt-free people, declared guilt-free, still need to ask for, receive, and extend forgiveness. 
It's part of living in this not yet there realm that we live in by grace. But we can do it as people that have been forgiven much. We've been forgiven much so we can forgive little. We need to ask for forgiveness. That in itself is a demonstration of the gospel. Because you're coming and you're saying, I trust God in you to forgive me. That in itself is an expression of our dependence on God as we meet with one another. Remember, the time is near. The end has drawn near already. Please don't let anybody in your life go to bed feeling that you are displeased with them. Because you go to bed every night putting your head on the pillow, knowing that your heavenly Father is pleased with you because of Jesus. You go to bed every night putting your head on the pillow, knowing that he rejoices over you with singing. He comforts you with his love. Are you extending that? Is that what every person in your life is experiencing from you? I don't think Simeon was taking that opportunity to extend that, to be among the people. Please be among the people. Don't forsake fellowshipping. Let everyone in your life go to bed going, he loves me, she loves me your children, your parents, your brothers and your sisters, your, your spouse in particular. What a glorious opportunity to declare the gospel to one another. Third point he makes. I love this one. Glorious things. Love one another as I have loved you. Be ready to die. And now, by the way, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. What? So, put your coffee pot on, make some popcorn. And this is what we do while we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We had a recent experience in our family where my daughter brought us uh, a convicting word because she said, hey, you know, we love having people over. Uh, You guys really love it. You love it when we have people over to play games or to fellowship and to pray for people and to do counseling or whatever it is. But there's just something about the before and after that there's a lot of grumbling that goes on. So I, I do. I love having people over. I love parties. I love uh, just being with people. I don't like sitting on a flagpole. I hate cleaning toilets. I hate washing dishes after it's all done. I hate that stuff. But the Lord just convicted me through my daughter. But then as I'm reading this passage, I'm realizing, why did Peter include this in here? Because this is what Jesus is doing right now. I go to prepare a place for you. He's cleaning toilets, whatever they look like in heaven. He's polishing the brass. He's prepared. He's building a house for us. So offering hospitality is the gospel. I mean, as we prepare, even getting ready, I should be singing. I should be going. I get to enter into the same ministry that Jesus does. So cleaning the bathrooms for guests to come, making that same bed that I should have never bought because it's impossible to make because of the way that the boards are and why in the world do we ever buy this bed? It's a glorious thing. I should be worshiping God because I'm getting to do what Jesus does. I'm getting to be a prince. I'm doing what the king, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, my savior is doing right now. That's the gospel. It needs to transform the way that we think. Clear-minded believers who remember he suffered and he's calling me to suffer And suffering is a glorious thing. It's glorious because he's coming back and his reward is going to be with him. And so cleaning the toilets, washing that same dish for the 5,000th time, 
cleaning the diaper pail out or whatever it is that you poor young moms have to do, deal with these days. All of these things, these are, these are wonderful things. They're serving. They're offering our hearts to other people. They're offering hospitality. And in so doing, we're proclaiming the gospel to the people that we get to interact with, that we get to interact with. Amazing. We have some incredible demonstrations of this in this church. So I just would encourage you, don't sit on a flagpole. Don't sit in front of a TV watching TV. Don't spend your life doing something that you can do in front of your computer screen, over our computer screen, over on our phones, on all these things that would draw us away from people. Guess where the kingdom of God is? It's with us together. It's gathering together. It's not forsaking the fellowship of ourselves together. You can't offer hospitality if you're sitting in front of your computer screen all the time. Be with the people of God. That's what we get to do. And if you don't love it, say, Lord, I don't love it yet. Please change me. I need to love this. You love this. You left glory and comfort and, and where everybody treated you the way you should have been treated to come down here and be spat upon and mocked and die for me. And you did it because you love me. Make me like that. Remind me that you've suffered and that you're coming back and let me live my life within that box. That's where truth and glory is. And then finally, use the gifts of God's grace to serve the people of God. Use the gifts of God's grace to serve the people of God. If you look at that, he says, each one of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others Being faithful stewards of God's multicolored, varied grace. We've studied 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. There's lists of spiritual gifts in there. We've talked about tongues and prophecy and these other things. There's other places in the New Testament where we talk about other gifts. Clearly, these are just meant to be uh, the tip of the iceberg. There are endless varieties of gifts, multicolored giftings that God gives to his people that are all meant to be used in community. They're all meant to be used for one another. They're not meant to be used in my closet, by myself for the rest of my life, on a flagpole for the rest of my life. That's not what happens. God has not called us to that kind of isolation. He's called us together. This is what Peter's telling us. Use your gifts not to commune only with God. There's nothing wrong with communing with God as long as you come down off that mountaintop and serve people. This is the word of the Lord through Peter. We can't argue with it. You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with the word of God. I think Simeon would argue with the word of God. And I don't know about the rest of his life. His, his life may have been wonderful. Uh, this may be a caricature of what he actually did. He may have spent a lot of time teaching and really loved the people that he was teaching. I don't know. But the way this is presented, it would, it would demonstrate that he didn't want to be with people, that he felt that was something wrong with that. It was hindrance to him. That is just not true. Being with people is what we're called to do while we wait for him to come back. And then we're going to be with more people because there's some that are already there. And we're going to be with angels. And we're going to be in seeing the face of Jesus forever. It's going to be amazing. So let's practice now these gifts. He breaks it down into two, two categories. The first one is those who speak, speaking, as it were, the oracles of God. Now, nobody in this room... Some, some of the people in the first service probably, but no, nobody in this room, no, I'm only kidding. Nobody in this room is ever going to truly speak an oracle of God that someone's going to write down and put it right after Revelation in the Bible. It's not going to happen. That's not what he means. He knows, as he's writing, that God's, the Spirit's empowering him, and they understood, here's the Scriptures. The church has confirmed this is the canon of Scripture. This is what God has spoken. But 
as we speak, we need to take our speech that seriously as if this were the oracles of God. So when I speak to someone, am I thinking, wait, in light of the fact that Jesus came and suffered, he's calling me to follow his example and he's coming back, how do I want to say this? What do I want to say? I want to speak as one who speaks into that situation, who speaks the truth about him, the truth about the other, who speaks words of forgiveness, who speaks words of encouragement, who may need to speak words of rebuke or exhortation at, at times, but always because he's come and he's coming back for no other reason, not because I'm angry and I need to, be, I need to justify myself in your eyes and I need to win this argument. What about the things you're writing? What about Facebook? Facebook is an incredible opportunity that I stay as far away from as I can because I'd probably blow the world up if I got on it. But it's, a, it's an amazing opportunity that has a lot of inherent dangers because what typically happens with the Facebook pages I've seen that is I'm de- I want to declare the oracles of me. Instead of, I want, I want to be as one speaking the oracles of God. It's an amazing opportunity to point people to Jesus and what he's done and what he's doing. And people all around the world can see God's at work in our church, in my life. Let me give praise to him. It's an amazing opportunity and it's an amazing temptation to go back and put raggedy old clothes on. And think that life is about me and it doesn't, I don't even know whether Jesus is coming back or not. So I'm just going to live for right now. This moment, what I say right now doesn't matter. Jesus would say otherwise. What you say right now matters. I'm coming back. Speak as one speaking the oracles of God. Text as one texting the oracles of God. Any of these other things. But but Lord, use our tongues. Let's pray. Use our tongues. Use our pens. Use our words. Use our thoughts to do the very thing that this, this passage is calling us to. That in all things God may be praised. Through Jesus Christ. Speak as one speaking the oracles of God. And then the last one, let him who serves. So again, we've got speaking gifts, which may include tongues, prophecy, miraculous things. It may include just words of, of encouragement coming together, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, all these things. Everything that we say would be included under that one. In this other one, serve with the strength that God provides We're talking about what is the Holy Spirit calling me to do? And what is the Holy Spirit empowering me to do? Remember, the unfinished gospel empowers us and teaches us to glorify God in the short time that's remaining. So here comes the Spirit of God, Jesus, who's seated at the Father's right hand, who even right now is praying for us, one of the things he's called us to do. Even right now is preparing a place for us, hospitality, one of the things he's calling us to do. Even right now and forever has loved us, one of the things he's calling us to do. You see the pattern here? We're called to imitate. We're called to show the gospel forth. That's what we do with our serving. When we serve with the strength God provides. And I'll tell you a story about my mother-in-law who normally sits here in the first service. She is 80 years old. She listened to Craig's teaching out of 1 Corinthians 12. She's never been a part for very long of a church. Her husband was not a believer. My father-in-law, for, for most of his life, we believe he got saved right before he died. Uh, our hope is that we're going to see him again, but she, he would not take her to church for all those years. She doesn't drive. So she's been a faithful prayer warrior for many years. She's been a faithful uh, uh, sister in the Lord wonderful mother-in-law. I have a great, great, wonderful, best mother-in-law on the planet. However, she came to that series and she goes at 80, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. So the word of God went out and it impacted her heart. And she's been going to care group faithfully and she's been coming and 
just answering questions and calling us to say, now, Dean sent out 15 questions, and I need to answer all of them and be prepared for my... So it's just sweet, and it's the sweetest thing. But she calls up one day to say, I'm so excited. I think God showed me what my spiritual gift is. This week, as I've been praying, Lord, show me what my spiritual gift is in response to the Word, in response to conviction from the Word. She goes, three ladies from my, my community with very serious needs, came to me one after another after another and said, would you pray for me? And I, I knew you would pray for me. And they all said the same thing. I knew you would pray for me. And as that, the Lord just opened her eyes to see, that's my spiritual gift. And it really is. I mean, she's been praying for everybody. On, I mean, she has a very long prayer list, but she never just saw it that way. And those, the Lord used those women saying, I knew you would pray for me to just convince her. And so now at 80 years old, she's all excited about what God is going to do through her as she gets to wait until he comes back, just like the rest of us are doing. That's what, Paul's t- that's what Peter's talking about here. Each one, everyone in this room is gifted. Every single one. Do you know what your gifts are? Your gift or your gifts. Are you asking for more? As we heard in that, that uh, series on 1 Corinthians, ask earnestly desire. Not so that you can be approved of, not so that you can earn favor with God, but so that you can more powerfully be the prince or princess that you already are through his declaration of not guilty. So what do we do with our freedom from the guilt that we have been given through the gospel? If you've never received freedom from guilt, if you've never received this gift of the free grace that God gives through Jesus Christ. We want to pray for you today because I believe that the Lord can meet you right now. You can turn to him with repentance and faith and put your trust 100% in him and not in yourself. No more sitting on a platform to try to earn his favor. Receive his favor as a free gift. And then you can be brought into this grace in which we now stand. And you can live the rest of your life making the most of every opportunity. If you're a believer, think clearly. Think about the gospel. Think about this over your life, this message. The end is near. Am I doing everything as if the end is near? Am I doing everything as if Jesus has come and suffered and is calling me into the fellowship of his sufferings? Love deeply. Offer hospitality. Cry out to the Lord and discover the gifts he's given you and use them to serve one another, which means being with one another. All of this glorifies him, which is the very thing Peter said earlier in this book we were called to do. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation of people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, said not guilty, and is bringing you into this wonderful kingdom of his son that we'll get to enjoy forever, beginning now. Let's pray. Father, we we just cry out to you for a deeper, deeper understanding of all of this, that we would order our lives according to your word, that we would not seek other wisdom other than your wisdom, or that we would not seek other ways, that we would not try to earn your favor as the Galatians did and went back. Lord, help us to keep the royal robes on that you've given us. Help us to act and live in such a way that you are glorified and that we are continually and increasingly enjoying this great grace that you've brought us into through the death of your son. Help us to walk in a manner and to enjoy walking in a manner and to delight 
in walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, that you might be glorified by our lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.